We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17, as we read our scripture passage this morning, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes this about the early church and the growth. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Pollyanna, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So that's here a very good example of what it looks like to go and evangelize, to explain, to reason, demonstrate Christ, the risen one. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Bit of an exaggeration there, isn't there? Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thess Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Very good example to us as believers to be in the word, thinking, searching. Don't just take our word for it. Look into God's word. Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. They just couldn't let them go. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. 
Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that this may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they, should, they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them are Dionysus and an Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 32, please, this morning. Genesis 32, as we continue our series through the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 32. Two decades have passed since Jacob left his parents and his angry brother Esau behind and went to the land of Paddan Aram and Haran, to be able to find a wife and to find work until perhaps the anger of his brother subsided. And so uh, he's coming back now. He's dealt finally with Laban, who was upset at him. He hopes Esau will receive him kindly upon his return, but as we'll find, he's not very confident about that fact. He had quite some struggles with 
these people over the years, and so far God has kept him all the way. And you recall in chapter 28, 20 years earlier when he left uh, his homeland, that God had met with him at Bethel and promised that he would be with him. And that, that promise is going to come out uh, quite uh, prominently again here as we look at this portion. So let's start with chapter 32 and see how far we get through it in chapter 33. I'll just start reading here in chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed with there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. I'll just pause there for a minute. The text records that on his homeward journey, he encounters several angels along the way. It doesn't tell us uh, what they said or whatever, but it undoubtedly, to me at least, seems to remind him of the last time that he saw angels. When was that? At least recorded. In chapter 28, he saw a staircase to heaven. Remember that? And the angels of God ascending and descending on that staircase. And we talked about that when we visited that portion of Scripture. Uh, Of course, we don't know what the angels said to him, if anything, but their presence calls back to his mind the memory of that event 20 years earlier and God's promise to him and his promise to God. Maybe they encouraged or strengthened him in light of his deep concern about the future. The passage in chapter 28, though, reminded us, and so I'll say it again now, that God is involved in the business of people on earth, isn't he? The stairway to heaven, the staircase or the ladder that Jacob saw, symbolized that God is there in heaven, earth is down here, and he has an interaction with the things on earth. God is not so transcendent that he cannot be imminent. Not imminent, like James was talking about this morning, but imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, which means he's present, he's near, as well as being high and holy and lifted up. And he does serve, have his servants come to minister to his people. Uh, care and cares for the things on this earth. So he's not afar off like the deist God, nor is he unwilling uh, or unable to interact or help with human problems. And so he reminds Jacob of that closeness that he has. Now, this is not the same location as Bethel earlier. He'll come to there a later point in the book of Genesis again. But so Jacob gave it a different name. And I've given you the kind of... uh, pronunciation of the word Mahanaim, with the accent on the second-to-last syllable, which means, I say this, it's kind of a strange way of saying it, dual camp. Uh, It means double camp or dual camp, and it's uh, from a word that's formed in Hebrew in the dual uh, sense. What does that mean? Well, this may be too much for you, but you know how in English we have singular and we have plural? 
Well, in Hebrew, they also have dual, meaning two. So you can say a word is one thing or many things, but also it could be just two things, a pair. And that's what that ending, ayam, nayam, means in Mahanayim. Perhaps it was the camp of God and the camp of Jacob, two camping in one place. But regardless, that was the name of it, and it just became a name, didn't have a huge significance. It was in Gilead near the Jabbok River, east of the Jordan River. That river, Jabbok River, uh, empties into the Jordan uh, about halfway between Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. You know, Jordan runs the length of the, that, that distance there, and this uh, river empties into that one. In verses 3 to 6, Jacob sends messengers to his brother, outlines his situation, and he wants to find favor in his sight. But the messengers return with a rather ominous report. Why does he need 400 men to come and meet me? This doesn't look good, uh, so it's, uh, it adds to his fear. Notice how he, re- he says to the messengers, Jacob, your servant, what is he doing there? He's showing humility to his brother, his older brother. But what did the scripture say? The older was going to serve the younger. Actually, it was, uh, it was upside down, but you notice how the leader was not hesitant to put himself in a place of service, indeed. Uh, So this is a problem. Jacob is deeply distressed, uh, and he makes an arrangement in verses 7 to 8 that he splits the camp in two so that perhaps if there is an armed conflict, half of his uh, group can get away and he'll mitigate the disaster uh, of that. Now, when... Facing distressing situations like what Jacob was facing, what do you do? You freak out? That's what people do. (laughs) They freak out. They have a panic attack uh, or whatever, however you call it today. They have a conniption or something. Remember what God said when you face those kinds of circumstances, okay? In chapter 28, 13 to 15, Uh, God promised a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant through Isaac and now through Jacob. And so God's promises simply must have to be, it's required that they be fulfilled. Yes? It's required that they be fulfilled. So he's wondering, now I'm I'm on my way home. I don't know that I'm going to make it home. When he looks at Esau and 400 men and the circumstances from 20 years earlier and all that, you might have anxieties like that in your life. But notice what God said to Jacob in chapter 28. I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. Your descendants shall be numerous. You're going to spread out geographically. In your seed and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've spoken. Now, do we have to be more clear than that? No, we don't. And it was at that point back in chapter 28, at least tentatively or provisionally, Jacob decided that the God of Abraham and Isaac would be his God as well. He's the God of my grandfather. He's the God of my father, the fear of my father Isaac. I'm going to take him as well as my God. He's proven himself faithful 
in all the incidents and all the circumstances and all the history of my family over hundreds of years, bringing us to this point, decades and decades of time, and so I'm going to take him as well to be my God. And so it was his time to choose, to decide to follow the true God of his fathers. And he, however, had to make that explicit conscious choice. Let me just pause and ask if you have made that choice to follow the true and the living God. Not that your parents made that choice for you, not that you just kind of happened to show up to church once in a while, but that you in your heart of hearts have said, I belong to God, I am his, and I take him as mine. I believe in him in the way that he specifies in the scriptures. That Jesus that we read about earlier in Acts chapter 17 died and rose again. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one from ancient past that God said would come and take care of the sin problem of the world. When he died on the cross, he paid for those sins that you and I have committed. I I, I shudder to think that he did that work and you would ignore it. He did that work and at least as I understand it, His work is of infinite value. And you would say, eh, I'll take care of my own sins. You would ignore the payment that he has made graciously on your behalf. You would say, substitute? I don't need a substitute. I'll roll my own. Don't do that, my friends. You take God as your God. You take Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And then when you do that, You enter into God's family instantaneously, by the way, when you believe in Christ. And then you have to deal with, you know, now you have to live daily and you run into sin problems still in your life and you struggle and you're not as sanctified as you know you ought to be and you have all kinds of problems and you wonder, am I going to make it home? You know what I mean by home now? Heavenly home. But not one promise of God has ever failed. And if you tell him, I am yours, I believe in you, I am a sinner, I I acknowledge that, please graciously forgive me. He promises to do that through Christ. And you do that, and then you just, I don't have a whole list of promises from the New Testament like I just listed here. What did I put? Seven of them from what God said in chapter 28 to Jacob. But you could do the same from the New Testament for yourself. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you believe in me, then you will belong to me forever. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Even if 400 men are coming after us, trying to get us to undo all that, or destroy us. God has promised, and never, ever will God fail to keep his promise. If you believe in him, the Bible says you will not be ashamed. Well, people will think it's shameful. I know. You're a Christian? You must be an idiot. Oh, no. I just have a longer-term view of things than you do. My view is not just make the next buck, have the next pleasure, watch the next movie, uh, you know, climb up the corporate ladder. My view is 
to eternity. It's a much longer range view of things. When you don't have that in mind, then you make bad decisions. So Jacob had to learn that he could trust God. Now, to his credit, what does he do in chapter 32, verse number, uh, verse number 8? Sorry, verse number 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. So to his credit, what did he do? He prayed. He may have had some pessimism. And why not? If he knew character, human character like you and I do, then he might well be pessimistic, wouldn't he? But he prayed. So he prayed earnestly based on God's promise. As God had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, now Jacob was being called back from Haran and Paddan Aram to the promised land, but he's facing this foreboding situation. But he cries to God to fulfill his promises. Now notice verse number 10. In a few, I mean, there's several portions of this that I want to get across to you in the next few minutes before we close, but if you could get nothing else from this message, get verse 10 in this attitude. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And you are not worthy either. Jacob was not worthy. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because it's of God's grace that he saves us. It's of his mercy and compassion that he saves us. But if you can grasp that idea and realize, I'm not worthy, but God has graciously bestowed on me the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. You've got, you've got the core of the idea here. Very important. I commend this to you. Neither you nor I are worthy of the smallest of God's mercies, and we gratefully receive those mercies and, and acknowledge him and, and live accordingly. I mean, if you think of Jacob, look at when he left 20 years ago, what did he have with him? He says later on, I had my staff. That's it. I mean, it was him and nothing. And now he comes back with 11 chil- 12 children, four wives, gobs of animals, wealth, servants, everything. I mean, that's multiplication right there. That's almost like creating something out of nothing. The least of his mercies. So he says... Uh, that was at the end of verse 10. I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's okay to remind God of his promises, but he already remembers them, actually. (laughs) Reminding God of his promises is really probably more reminding us aren't we, of his promises. So it says he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Now, I'm not going to read through all of this just to save time, but I'll let you read through it. In the bottom line, he gives a, a, a gift of 550 animals to his brother Esau, prepares it anyway. 550 animals. Now, does any, do any of you know how, many, how much value that might be? Oh, you're looking at the notes, so you cheated. Uh, Yeah, Jackson, I see. (laughs) What's a sheep cost? 
You know, anybody bought sheep lately? I, I looked it up just out of curiosity, just a low number, t- uh, two, 200 bucks, okay, 150, somebody says. I saw some for higher. If, if, it's, a, if it's a ram, it's going to be higher because of the productivity of it, and blah, 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 and all that. 200 bucks, 400 basically of, of, of lambs and goats and she goats, he goats, all that sort of stuff. We're talking $80,000 right there besides the camels and all the other stuff. $100,000 perhaps in modern value he's giving his brother. That's a gift. And his brother knows it. This is huge. He is really humbling himself, and he hoped that this would appease his brother after 20 years of, of his brother stewing about a stolen blessing and a stolen birthright. By the way, just let me say this. This does happen. If you have been stewing bitter over some perceived offense for 10 or 20 or 30 years, there's something sinfully wrong in you. Not in the person that did something wrong to you. They might have done something wrong to you, but if you're stewing over it 10, 20, 30 years later, there's something sinfully wrong in you. Now, the fact is that this stewing, I call it, is so common that it gives rise to Jacob's understandable pessimism. Yet, he should still trust God and his promises. I mean, this is evident in non-Christian cultures and non-Christians all over the world. There, are, there is what's called generational hatred, generational animosity, generational racism and ethnocentrism. That kind of stuff is destructive and wicked. Let's just call it like it is. That is a wrong feature, a sinful feature of any culture to have that sort of thing. The scripture is very clear. The fathers are not punished for the sins of the children, nor the children punished for the sins of the fathers. So, and it does happen intergenerationally, Hatfields and McCoys kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Parents teach their kids to hate and by the time you get down a few years, you ask them, well, why do you, why do you hate them? Uh, I don't know. It's just what I was told to do. What sense does that make? Certainly for Christians, it's out of the question. Out of the question. But Jacob should still trust God to keep his promises. Um, so now let's come to uh, the one, maybe one time, I don't know, is there other times in the Bible where there's a wrestling match? Uh, verse 22, and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. He, he took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. And Jacob was left alone. He made sure everybody got across the river. And then it says, like out of the blue, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, if he was left alone, who was this man? Now when he saw, he, the man, saw that he did not prevail against him, Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. That's, it's a little, humorously I would say, it's a little unfair for God to use his supernatural powers on poor Jacob. But he got after him and uh, put his hip out of joint. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? Ah, what is your name? What is his name? Esau? Remember the last time he was asked that question? 
Esau. He lied, but he said Jacob instead. He told the truth. And God said to him, that's who this man is, the pre-incarnate God, Christ. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God. That's how we know it's God. And with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. So, you know, hi, my name is Jacob. What's yours? And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Again, if you know Hebrew, you would know Peniel comes from Pana, which is face, and El, which is God. He says, I have seen the face of God, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. That's not in the law. That's just in the cultural practice uh, that they had at, at that time, or began, began to have at that time. So uh, we have the wrestling match. So what happened? Jacob wrestled with God until daybreak. God put his hip out of joint. I don't understand all the anatomy of that, but I'll let you uh, orthopedic people and all that figure all that out. It says that God blessed Jacob. God asked him what his name was to get to his identity and kind of confront him about his deception over the years. He was the deceiver, the supplanter, but God has worked on him. And this time Jacob told the truth about his identity. And then God renamed Jacob to Israel, which means he who struggles with God. Jacob's life was more of a struggle than it had to be, I think. The sin and the deception and all of that. Sometimes we do that to ourselves too, don't we? The way of the sinner is hard, isn't it? God sees to that. Nature sees to that. Uh, but God didn't give him his name, but Jacob realized he'd seen God face to face and lived. And so that's why he called the name of that place Peniel, the face of God. Now, two things about this wrestling match here. The physical wrestling represents the struggle that Jacob had with men and ultimately with God over several decades. Okay, so this is not a, a weird kind of thing. It's unusual to be sure, but what God was doing was showing him in a physical format that he had struggled with God and with men. His dad, Esau, Laban, Laban's servants, Laban's sons, uh, with Laban again, with his wives, and now finally with God. He has struggled with them. His spiritual life has been up and down. He's had a difficult time of it. But he persisted, he persevered, he prevailed against all of them. And finally, God blessed him. In Christianity, then, this comes forward to us this way. The wrestling match has come to symbolize struggling with God in prayer in times of difficulty, seeking blessing from him and not giving up especially in prayer through the nighttime hours. Have you ever had times when you can't sleep? <laughs> More than I'd like to recount. Have you wrestled with God? 
in prayer. You know what I mean? I will not stop until you bless me, until I get the answer that I need. Sometimes you don't get the answer that you want. Um, but you know what? Yeah, 20 years here, 30 years here, he's struggling with, with men and with God, and sometimes our spiritual life has those kinds of twists and turns and ups and downs and difficulties, doesn't it? You know in your own heart what I'm talking about. Keep struggling. Keep persisting. Keep prevailing with God. Don't give up. Sometimes people just throw in the towel. You know, God didn't allow that to happen. I've had this struggle. God allowed so-and-so to die. Forget it. That's not ultimately what Jacob did. He kept on wrestling with God and with men. His life was far from perfect. You're never going to hear me say, get perfect and then get right with God. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't reform your life and become a Christian before God regenerates your heart. You cannot come to him and say, God, I'm all dressed up now, had my bath, I'm all clean, now take me. No, you come to God as a dirty sinner and you simply say, wash me and I will be clean. Well, back to the narrative of the text in chapter 33, they meet. Uh, Esau is afar off. Jacob arranges for his family to arrive in a certain order. You see that. Uh, he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in the front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. What does that tell you about his favorites? <laughs> That's pretty clear. Uh, then, then he crossed over before them. Now, maybe if you read this, you like me earlier on when I read it, and say, oh, he sent them forward in the waves like he did the gifts, and then he came last. No, actually, he came first says, he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Imagine his brother seeing that, his younger brother bowing down before him seven times. That right there could have changed his heart. Jacob led the way. His family followed in its group order. Jacob insisted that... Esau received his present, that's uh, in verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? He said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then they came forward and they Uh, exhibited the same kind of humility. I'm sure Jacob had instructed them, when you come forward and it's your turn, you'd kneel down, bow down before my brother. And finally, Joseph and Rachel came last and they bowed down. And Esau says, what do you mean about all this stuff that you've sent to me? And he says, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau says, look, I have enough to keep for yourself. And Jacob insists and prevails upon him and says, no, you take the gift. I have plenty. God has given me plenty. I want to give you this $100,000 gift. He was wealthy, and God had given him all of that wealth. 
Evidently, time will say time had healed Esau's wounds. He found that life was not so bad despite receiving, not receiving rather, the Abrahamic blessing. He was the uh, recipient of collateral blessings from God and, and they were reconciled together, the two brothers. So they made an arrangement for uh, their travels back towards Mount Seir, towards where Edom, Esau was living. And uh, so that's the rest of really chapter 33. And I'll let you read that narrative there. I encourage you to do that, to cement it in your mind. Eventually, Jacob arrived near the city of Shechem. And Shechem is going to come up in the next chapter, which I have to deal with very uh, sensitively because it has a very unhappy topic in it. So uh, watch uh, for that in the future week or two week next, uh, next time. I just will try to deal with it in a sensitive fashion. But uh, when he got there, uh, he bought a plot of ground from Hamor for 100 pieces of money, 100 pieces of silver perhaps. And you might say, well, that's strange because it's his land. I mean, God promised him that land, but he hadn't, hadn't actually transferred the deed over to them yet. And so he was buying the piece of ground, not like he couldn't afford it. Later on, God gave the nation of Israel the entire land as the spoil of their battle. The land, by the way, is God's to begin with, isn't it? The land of Ann Arbor all belongs to God. It belongs to God. We uh, are stewards of it, and, uh, you know, of course, we end up renting it from the government, paying our taxes as the rental fee, but uh, it belongs to God. The, the promised land belonged to God. He could give it to whom he wanted to give it to. This is the, this is the problem with people who say, uh, you know, this land was stolen by the Jews. No, God gave it to them. God is sovereign. And, in fact, they won it in battle centuries, millennia, in fact, ago. But anyways, we don't need to get into that at the moment. When he came to his place of, uh, of rest, finally, he built an altar and what did he call it? El Eloha Israel. God, the God of Israel. Well, that's interesting because Israel is a new name for him. It's not El Eloha Avraham or Yitzhak. It's El Eloha Israel. It's God, the God of Israel. What a testimony that is. Now he's cemented that God is the God of Israel, not just the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, but now he's the God of Jacob. Two truths as I close. One of the truths we encountered was that we have to rely on God's promises to keep us steady in difficult times. We must not freak out in the face of problems. Instead, we remember that God is with us, those who belong to him. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, period. Another truth as we close. I don't wish trials upon any of you, but the scripture says those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. They, we will. In this world, you will have tribulation, the Lord said. There's just no way around it. I don't wish you that, but I do wish you the blessing of wrestling with God in prayer and prevailing. Sometimes you may say, well, I haven't prevailed yet, but just know this, never is it a waste of time to wrestle with God in prayer. Always useful. So please be a prayer wrestler with God. Don't give up.
persist in your struggles with men and with God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will bless our time here. Take it and make it uh, memorable, make it useful, make it edifying, make it transformative. As we've allowed the Word of God to wash over our minds, may it cleanse us. May it make us more like Jesus, our Savior. May it help us to wrestle with you in prayer and to trust in your promises that you've so clearly outlined in Scripture. Lord, for anyone here today who does not know the Lord, I pray that the words we shared kind of in the little commentary between portions of the notes here would receive the love of Christ and be saved, be born again, be washed from their iniquities, be cleansed, be happy in Jesus instead of despondent in sin. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.